Welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. This week, we're going to be in Philadelphia at the Podcast Movement 2018, the largest and best podcast conference out there. We're going to be spending a few days going to panels and meeting with other producers and finding ways to make this podcast that much better. We also encourage you, our listeners, to drop us an email, message us on Twitter and Instagram with the hashtag BHPhotoPodcast, or comment on iTunes and let us know your thoughts on how we can make this show that much better. We love the feedback we get and look forward to hearing from you. Today's episode is going to be an encore presentation of the show we did with photographers Lois Greenfield and Omar Z. Robles. It's a wonderful conversation on dance photography, but it covers so much territory, and it's just fantastic to hear just how two photographers approach a similar subject with such distinctive but equally beautiful results. And while you're at it, we encourage you to dig into our back catalog. We have over two years of episodes, and some of our earlier ones, while a little bit rough around the edges, have some great conversations on drone street photography, crime scene unit photography, and alternative process photography. I recommend an episode we do with Michael Kenna and Paul Copernegro, and our fifth episode ever on the secret history of Leica. That was a really, really good show. Finally... We just kicked off our B&H Photography podcast, Fujifilm X-H1 Sweepstakes. So if you want a chance to win a Fujifilm X-H1 mirrorless camera with a Fujinon 35F2 lens, or a Fujifilm X-E3 mirrorless camera with a Fujinon 23mm F2 lens, check the link in today's show notes. For entry instructions and rules, the entry period is from July 26, 2018 to August 15, 2018. So good luck and enjoy our conversation with Omar Z. Robles and Lois Greenfield. And we're going to be back with a new episode next week. I'm Alan Weitz. And on behalf of Jason and John, thank you so much for tuning in and for your continued support. You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the B&H app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. Welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. Before we begin, a quick reminder to tweet us at BHPhotoVideo with the hashtag BHPhotoPodcast and rate us on iTunes. We love doing the show and your comments go a long way in helping us fine-tune our efforts in making it better. Today, John Harrison and I will be talking with Lois Greenfield and Omar Z. Robles, two photographers who visually interpret the art of dance in uniquely different ways. Lois Greenfield began back in the early 70s, initially covering the experimental dance movement scene for the Village Voice. She has photographed the performers of a number of dance companies, including Alvin Ailey and the American Ballet Theater, and her unique approach to photographing the human form in motion has influenced a generation of photographers. Since 2014, Lois has been an artist-in-residence at NYU Tisch Department of Dance and New Media, and last year she was honored with the Dance in Focus Award in recognition of her contributions to the field of dance photography. She is also the author of three best-selling books, Breaking Bounds, Airborne, and Lois Greenfield, Moving Still. Omar Z. Robles learned the art of body movement from a master of the craft, the legendary mime Marcel Marceau. As a photographer for the Chicago Tribune, Metro San Juan, and Latino leaders, he has extensive experience photographing celebrities, athletes, artists, politicians, and an assortment of city dwellers. But what he's best known for is his knack for outdoor dance photography, in which he has fused the lessons he has learned from the king of mime with his keen sense of street culture. Omar's work has appeared on Mashable, The Huffington Post, The Daily Mail, and Harper's Bazaar, and he has 188,000 Instagram followers. He's also an official Fujifilm X photographer, and he has photographed for The Gap, Apple Music, and Esquire magazine. Welcome, both of you. Sometimes <laughs> it's easier the, than others. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Good, anyway, good night. Thank you for all tuning in here. <laughs> okay. I'd like to start by asking each of you how you got into dance photography, because it's, it's really a niche kind of a market. And, and it's, it's, I imagine it's not the easiest one to break into because the people who da do dance must be very particular about how they are portrayed. That's what I would assume. You've got a lot of egos going on here and stuff like that. And there's a precision and it's an art and a craft. Lois, can you give us a little bit of a background? 
Well, I virtually stumbled into dance photography. I was a newspaper photographer when I graduated from college and was mm -hmm. covering, you know, riots and demonstrations of the early 70s and rock and roll people and uh, authors that came to Boston where I was working. And one of the assignments I was given, one of the beats I was given was to photograph dancers. And I discovered that I actually enjoyed the experience of photographing something that only had to be visually interesting and not tell a story. Did you expect it to be that way? When you first heard dance, were you like, oh, okay, is it just dance? Or was it something that kind of sparked you from the beginning? No, it was just, you know, one subject or another. another and I was assignment. really just cutting my teeth in photography altogether. I never studied it, so I just had a camera and went out. And When did you know that this is it, this is what I want to do? And pretty much the last year of college when I started Okay, oh, um, so you go way back with this one. Yeah, this I go way back. Yeah. If, you, if you didn't study it, how did you uh, get your first job? How did that? How did it, you roll into uh, being a, a news photographer? Well, it was kind of easy in Boston, which was a city really run by kids back then. And so I had actually started taking photographs as a teenager on community service projects in, um, <clears throat> in an Apache Indian community in the States and in South America. And... Um, so that became the basis of my portfolio. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, I wanted to be um, an anthropologist or an ethnographic filmmaker, mm -hmm. and I was drawn to those kind of tribal cultures, mm -hmm. and that was the portfolio I went with, and then I was told to go shoot the Rolling Stones. Yeah. <laughs> Another tribe. <laughs> well, you know, it's really funny you say tribal anthropology. In, in a sense, I, I could see a lot of your photographs being quite similar to tribal photography in a sense. If you think of like Irving Penn going out into, you know, the wild, setting up a backdrop and I having all these. I love that book. Yeah. And, and in a sense, a lot of your stuff is similar to that in a way. I could see how those pictures side by side would not jar each other. They might even blend. It's, it's great. It's, yeah. you know. Omar, what about yourself? How'd you stumble into this? So... As as you mentioned, I my background initially before photography, I was an actual actually a professional mime, and I started with Marcel Marceau. When I started doing photography, to make the long story short, when I moved to New York, I started doing street photography, and um, the place where I was mostly posting my work and publishing my work was Instagram. And trying different things, at some point I was missing my performance days, so I started to put myself um, into the pictures, and the series actually started with shooting myself, uh, jumping in midair. And the idea was to try to capture the idea of, of defiance of gravity and, and, and just weightlessness, basically. So I started put, putting the camera on a tripod, or actually it was the phone at that time. I would just put my phone in a, <laughs> in a small tripod and then like jump in the middle of the street and, and do different things. And, um, um, and I met with a dancer here in New York that was doing something similar and I shot and I shot with her and then afterwards I started shooting with her friends and friends of her friends and and basically that's sort of how I how I started and then um, over the course of, of I think about a year of, of working with the series um, it started getting picked uh, started getting getting picked up by media and that's when the Instagram blog, uh, did a blog post about it, and then Mashable did a little bit of a story about it, and then sort of the audience started gravitating to that to that uh, content that I was creating more. So I th I thought I thought I decided to just take advantage of that wave, and then just you know like dive deep into it. Are some dancers better in front of a camera than others? Are there some people that just don't function well in front of a camera? Do they need to be on a stage with that whole setting? Or Well, it depends what the photographer wants. I mean, I'm not looking for a theatricality <clears throat> when I invite a dancer to my studio. I'm looking for their own free expression. I'm looking to free them from choreography uh -huh. and leave all those positions and arabesques and uh, padishahs and all that, you know, outside of our little uh, sandbox. I like to think of my studio as a sandbox uh -huh. <laughs> where we can just play and the dancers can invent movements and experiment with how their body works independent of any kind of choreography. And of course they know I'm just catching one split second out of an entire phrase of movement because I have a manual Hasselblad camera <laughs> which I have to wind in between each shot and so there's no chance for continuous action or, you know, rapid fire shooting. I go for one split second, which we then often repeat. So I'm asking them to draw on their own, uh, to self-create the moment, so to speak. I mean, I never tell them exactly what to do, 
And my interest in the whole process after all these years is the discovery that comes that ends up beyond my imagination. So I, in other words, I'll be clear about that. A lot of photographers have a, a, an idea on a layout or a position or some predetermined you know, visual that they want to realize in the photo. I come in with, with no idea and maybe a bunch of props, often dancers I've never worked with because I don't want them to give me what they think I want mm -hmm. and I just want them to be themselves. And what the interest for me then is to see what develops and then it's, it's a 50% collaboration because I'm directing and guiding them, their gestures or their expression or their position relative to other people. At the same time, they're just doing spontaneous combustion split seconds. And of course, we're adding all these props and mirrors and scarves. And also, I don't know where I'm going mm. when I start the process. And if I did know what the picture would look like, I wouldn't bother taking it. Can I ask, so you say that you don't direct them necessarily. But let's say you, you saw something in, in what they were doing before you clicked that image. Will you then say, you know what, what you did right before that is kind of what I'm looking for. Can you repeat that or, or you don't do that? No, no, I do. That's do. what happens. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of like surveying and mining and all of a sudden there's the geyser that, okay. you know, okay, this has potential. And it may be perfect because the more spontaneous something is, uh, the fresher and more magical it mm -hmm. appears. Mm -hmm. um, so then I'll find something and I'll say, let's keep doing this again. And I might uh, urge them to soften their hands, soften their face, never look at the camera, pretend that they have um, a purpose to what they're doing. So I want it to look like there's a thought mm -hmm. and that there's a reason for what they're doing, even though we're not privy to what it is because it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's just sort of more an ambiguous and enigmatic moment. Mm -hmm. But what makes it more complicated is when we add props. Yeah. So we're throwing fabrics or styrofoam balls or feathers or glitter or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of exciting because the photographer director, although I'm saying I'm not directing, but I'm guiding, um, is one aspect. But then there's the chance element of where these fabrics are going to land. And will the dancer throw it or will an assistant throw it? Will there be a fan? And then the timing, because mm -hmm. timing in dance photography is so important. And, of course, all dance photographers have to um, anticipate the moment and take click the shutter on the assumption that the subsequent split second will resolve itself mm -hmm. in a way, you know, that's really interesting. Omar smiling. So. <laughs> <laughs> he must know that pretty well. <laughs> so to add the, you know, the chaos of fabrics and everything, I find very exciting. Mm -hmm. And it's also a good balance between the control that all photographers kind of want and then the fact that the rest of it's in the hands of the gods. My, my follow-up question is, let's say that you don't get the moment that you wanted and you've tried and you've tried to try. Do you have a kind of an internal way of saying, okay, we'll pass, it's over, I'm not going to go for it any longer, or do you just keep keep, keep going? What's it's hard to say. I mean, it depends on, on the mood. I, I think it, the most important factor is, is the dancer getting tired? Hmm. A dancer yeah. will never uh, tell you they're yeah. tired hmm. <laughs> I mean, yep. all these years. So there's a kind of an arc of energy. The first shot is usually spontaneous and wonderful. And you want that shot, but you wished it were a little different. So you try to coax it into that same fresh spontaneity, mm -hmm. but with all the gestures and everything the way you want it. But after a number of times doing it, you're not going to get it. On the, at, so that's on the same, on a different token, <laughs> the more a dancer does something and the more tired they get, the more relaxed they get. And then sometimes it's fresher too. So, well, I, what's your experience when well, you're yeah. on the street with them? Because you're more constrained also by the fact that you're. In that there are cars going by. <laughs> well, and also during your presentation at, at Optic a few weeks ago, you mentioned the fact that you often have very small windows of time because you're working in the street, and mm -hmm. and and you know the sun is at a certain point only just for a few moments. And you work with light that's bouncing mm -hmm. off windows and stuff like that. So while Lois is working in a studio where the lighting is more or less contained, it could be two in the morning or two in the afternoon, it doesn't matter. You you have very specific things where you're almost, you are chasing the light. Yep. I mean, in many occasions, yes, I am I am chasing the light and I am sort of dependent of, of what's going to happen there. So. I think a little bit opposed to what Lewis does. Um, I I think I take a more of a lead um, role in directing because I need to 
make the most of that time. Uh, so I cannot chance to see, okay, what are you going to come up with? What, what, um, what idea it's in your mind? So most of the time I give them at least a, a cue or somewhere where we can start. And, and then I go through the process of, uh, I, which I think we all go through. It's like, okay, you did it this way. Maybe we can soften this. Maybe we can soften that. Maybe we can make this stronger and all that stuff. But I have to take advantage of the time that I have with that, for, for example, with that particular light. Um, or before the traffic light changes. Or before the traffic light changes, which <laughs> happens a lot, you know. Um, so, so I have to try, you know, like try and make the best of that time and because there's all those elements of... Um, sometimes danger. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, did you ever find yourself in a situation, looking at your work, there's a lot with, with sunlight and there's also stuff with the light is not shining. Did you ever get into a situation where the light was just horrible and you said, we're just calling it off today? Or do you just work with whatever you have? No, not really. I mean, I work with whatever I have because I try to be uh, as smart as I can in that sense. So I will try and book the sessions um, very early in the morning or later in the afternoon mm -hmm. so that it's closer to where the light is more um, directional. I guess when I start getting discouraged by the light, I guess it's, it's if I'm shooting in the morning and then it gets to the point where the sun is like going a little bit higher, then then th that light just doesn't work for me anymore. And then and it's also hotter, for example, now in the summer it gets oh, much yeah. hotter. So that time I would just call it quits. W winter is a much better time for you to work because the sun just never gets that high in the sky. It gets cold, except for the bodies. Of the yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, before we started, it was interesting. We had a little dialogue going on here. Omar, you are strictly digital. You, you came into photography. It, it, it was a digital world. Yes. Okay, Lois, you started in film and have gone into digital. Do you find that we talked before about spontaneity and 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 all this other stuff and knowing when when you got the shot or when it's working with film you didn't always have that you did get a couple of test polaroids but when you were actually shooting you didn't know what you had until the film came back now you can actually look at the screen or do you look at the screen do you keep working or do you, you do one of these you know keep yeah i try not it? to look at the screen actually and i don't the, the screen is great in that it can it's a great communicator, so to speak, a means of communication with the dancers because if I'm trying to give them direction, I could say, come take a look. Right. So they see what their face looks like. They say their leg is terrible. Their foot, of course, is always terrible no matter <laughs> what. You know. And so it's great for communication. But um, I need them to build up a certain momentum and continuity as they're jumping or, or whatever they're doing. So if they were to stop and look all the time or I were to stop and look all the time, it wouldn't be productive. And the other thing is that, I mean, and this is true for all photographers, we have to engage with what's in front of the camera the moment we're shooting. Yes, If yes. it's still life, it's fine. You can look at the monitor and adjust everything, and, and you know, the, the glass will still hopefully be there. But I can't do that. So the photographers who rely on seeing the last shot to determine the next shot are, are really missing things. Right. Um, and that's why also I, I don't use the continuous action function. I don't have one on my manual Hasselblad that I've had since the 80s. But I wouldn't want it because I want to make the decisive moment. And I don't want to give that to the camera to, to do it at every quarter of a second or eighth of a second. Or, or 10 frames per or second or whatever it is. Second. Yeah. I mean, I don't want them to determine the picture I want. Can I jump in real quick to, to follow up on what is the, the camera you use and the digital back? Yes, I use uh, the manual um, 500 series Hasselblad, which mm -hmm. I put on a tripod, mm -hmm. and it's the same camera I've had since the 80s. I don't even have an image reverser on it mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because I actually don't have to look, you don't look at in it. the camera. Right. It's That's not correct. something where cropping, cropping used to be important. When I fell in love with this camera in the 80s, it was because of this square format. And all my pictures from the first two books that you mentioned all have that black border. And that was an a dramatic element as well, you know, as a compositional element. So the people, the dancers were cropped or they were in or out or they were, the square could make people seem confined or it also expanded gravity because gravity we know just goes up and down. But in a square format, if the dancers are busting out of the sides, you've got a gravitational pull Interesting. that mm -hmm. way as well. Mm -hmm. So I was obsessed with the square. <laughs> My autobiography at that time would have been obsessed with the, the square. square. <laughs> so now with, with the digital, I'm freed from that obsession and I don't long for it. I think also, you know, working in film and of that era, there was a certain bravado or I'm not sure what the word is. There was a certain, I don't know, 
many photographers from you can that swear. era. <laughs> no, you know, we were hooked on the frame and the exquisite, perfect framing mm-hmm. that didn't involve cropping mm-hmm. and all that. So there was always that challenge of having the composition within the picture relate to the frame and. Um, so that was very exciting. Now, of course, I'm frameless, and I'm, I I don't shoot with any square, vertical, horizontal, any format in mind, and I can crop it as I wish. And I'm shooting in color, which is probably even a bigger uh, change mm. than the border. And you, which you could always, always turn back to black and white if need be. And when I started with a digital back, I the first thing I tested was not what it looked like in color, but how um, what kind of black and white file. Mm. And what is the digital back? I've used the Leaf digital backs and the Hasselblad digital backs. And and the other super important thing is my Braun color strobe Mm -hmm. system because I can stop motion at, I mean, I only need to stop it at 2,000th of a second. When I started, you know, basically you had a 500th of a second. That was the top sync speed of the Hasselblad lenses, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not the lenses, it's the duration of the strobe. Oh, the strobe, correct. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. The effective exposure is not determined by the camera. It's your flash the duration. Flash. If you're working in a studio, Omar yes. has to <laughs> mm-hmm. talk to the, the son about that. <laughs> We're going to come to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Omar, you had a few other thoughts. So I started shooting with Canon um, when, I was, when I was starting in photography. And then when I discovered mirrorless, that really, really changed the way I, I shoot, um, especially because with the mirrorless system, with, with the Fujifilm system specifically, which is with what I shoot, uh, um, you can see the exposure right in the camera. Um, and and these cameras have become really, really, really smart. And the fact that I can, for example, those moments where the light is hitting a specific part of the city, I can really see it and manipulate it as to how I want the exposure to be in camera. So it has definitely cut off on my time of editing, for example, afterwards, because... I can tweak everything in camera and see how it's going to be before I even get home and 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 start looking through the sh- through the shots. Um, I get that. So I routinely keep a thumb on the uh, exposure, exposure compensation comp- yeah. dial because yeah, the, the, I said the correct ex- the correct exposure is not always the best exposure. It's the exposure that you want exactly. It's the exposure that, it, that looks best and um, you know with with. Perhaps, you know, with, with other systems before, like the regular DSLR, you have to keep going back and forth, be, and there's a lot of chimping involved because, you know, you have to, like, shoot, look, and, oh, maybe I can adjust this or that. Whereas in in with the mirrorless system, with the Fujifilm system, I can look through the viewfinder, especially, for example, with the X-T1, that the viewfinder is so big inside, you know, like, you can look, and then you can, like, pinpoint at everything that you want to with the exposure and change things, so... Going when I was doing street photography, I could I, I would really be able to make those adjustments really fast because I could see them on the fly. And yeah, and then that was that's exactly what I do still. And with with uh, when I'm shooting that because I'm sorry, do you have a lens of choice? I shoot mostly with two. I shoot with um, ninety millimeter f two, which is equivalent to one thirty five, mm-hmm. and then with a fifty six f one two, that it's equivalent to eighty five. Yeah, um, most recently, I started shooting with the uh, fifty six uh, APD, which is like mm-hmm. specialized mm-hmm. that has like yeah. that yeah. kind of like circular yeah. um, ND filter. So yeah. it's it's a very subtle change, but I kind of like that it does like a little in camera vignetting. And you use the viewfinder. Or the LCD screen I more use, or back and forth? I use both. It really depends. And like when, when there's too much distraction, then I go straight to the viewfinder because I can just like concentrate mm-hmm. on that. Uh, but then sometimes I find myself detached from the camera a little bit. Um, and especially when I have to do like lower shots, then I can just flip the screen mm-hmm. up. And, and never a tripod. Uh, never. No, never a tripod. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just a hazard in the city. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, to be carrying like that, that, ex, that much extra, mm-hmm. um, I cannot really set it up like... Like by the time I set the tripod out, the car is coming and I have to get out of the street. So I I just like move in and out as as much as I can. And and Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And how much of of that aspect of it is is your your thrill, like the the interacting with the traffic? Or if you could just block a street, (laughs) would you prefer to do that? Or or do you you like the thrill of the city? I guess I like the thrill of the city for sure. I, I don't do it purposely that way. 
because of the thrill is just part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why I really shoot in the street is because, you know, when you when you look at it, the frame the the buildings frame perfectly mm-hmm. the dancers in many occasions. So that's mostly the reason why I do it because mm-hmm. you know I get to have like a pretty nice and interesting frame with the dancer in the middle of like leading lines and, and things like that. That you know you. You could not do it otherwise. Um, sometimes I would shoot on the sidewalk when I'm not too venturous or something like that, or, or when I would just I just want to create a different um, a different look to it. And do you keep like a running list of of locations as you're wandering around the city and say this will be a great spot for the next time? Or? Um, yes, I think from the time that I was shooting street photography all the time, I was walking a lot, and when I mean a lot, I was like almost going out every day for several hours, and I did that for about a year, mm-hmm. uh, or a year and a half that I was just going out every day, every day, every day, uh, almost religiously going out almost every day. So I walked around like most neighborhoods, um, I guess most common neighborhoods. I, I don't. Th- I wish I would have gone more to like, I guess, places in Brooklyn and the Bronx and stuff like mm-hmm. that, but I guess... Uh, the easier and more accessible places are like Midtown, Chinatown, sure. Soho, um, and those different areas. So, so that's where I where I grasp more of that aesthetic. It was when I was shooting street photography. So I don't necessarily keep a list of the places that 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 I like to shoot at, but I guess I do it unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lo- Lois was talking about going from that square format with the frames and how it was really part of her aesthetic. You're shooting with a, a camera that it's rectangular in format, mm-hmm. and yet we, we were talking a little bit earlier that most of your pictures, a great deal of them, end up being a square. How do you, do you try to envision that square when you shoot? Or are you just shooting using the whole screen and allowing for space? How does your mind process working when you're shooting? Well, the square is not that much happening anymore, but, but the reason why it was a square was, again, because the my publishing platform was Instagram. Exactly. And yeah. it still is. So back then Instagram would only allow a square. So I would I think you could do it like in Fujifilm cameras you can shoot in square format if you're shooting and then and then if you're shooting JPEG and RAW it will it will just keep the RAW in, yeah. in rectangular form and then just have the square in the JPEG. Did so, you use that function? So I would I would, use, I would use that function sometimes just to um to guide myself and, and make sure that everything was inside. Um what's interesting though is that many times, for example, when I was giving, you know, workshops and things like that, people would tell me like, oh the the square is so restricting and why do you have to you know, like restrict yourself to that. There's so much information that's out of, that's outside of the frame. And I says, no, it's like the information that is there is the information that I want it to be. So, you know, I'm not missing anything out of the frame. Uh, now, however, Instagram has changed and, and they yeah, allow yeah. For, for vertical and portrait, so landscape and, and, and portrait orientation. Um, however, for example, portrait orientation will take more of the screen, uh, the screen real estate. So, by trial and error, you realize that that you get much more engagement in pictures that are that take much more of the screen. Uh, so that's why I hardly now shoot in, in 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 landscape, and I'm shooting more in portrait because just by trial and error, I realize that portrait pictures take uh, a little a little more the attention of the audience. And with the you you shoot with the Fuji X system, do you have? What do you have, the X-T? So right now, um, I was shooting up to, with the X-T1 uh, up to last year, then, uh, well, up to recently, and then the X-Pro2 came out, and now I'm shooting mostly with the X-Pro2. Okay, and do you ex- do you use their color, their film simulations? Yes. And, and you do, you try yeah. everything they have um, Yeah, I mean, I really love it, and Fujifilm, one of their biggest assets is the, 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 the way they treat color, the way they work with color, and even, even the raw files, themselves come out beautifully that I don't have to do a whole lot um, but at times I, I I often shoot JPEG and RAW because sometimes the JPEG just comes mm-hmm. basically the way I wanted it and then I just tweak it a little bit yeah. um, mostly I use classic Chrome that mm-hmm. film simulation um, but then because um, when you edit on Lightroom afterwards, if you're editing the raw, you can also access those, those um, simulations. film simulations. Right. Um, I think um, Lightroom calls it camera profiles or something like mm-hmm. that, but it, it, it's the same sim- film simulation. So um, what I'll do is that sometimes when I, when I want to give myself a little bit more of a playing space or just, you know, like leeway, I guess mm-hmm. that's the right mm-hmm. word. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I want to 
give myself a little bit more leeway, then I go, I edit the raw, uh, and then I start with usually the classic Chrome or one of the other ones, and then I tweak it from there. And Lois, if uh, Instagram had been around when you were starting in this, would you have embraced it, you think? Uh, would you have found that as a... Or do you embrace it now, I should ask? Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. definitely, especially um, with the, the new book, uh-huh. Moving Still, coming out. Yeah, we went into social media in a big way, okay. and it's great. Yeah. It's really great. Oh, good. Do you yeah. think about it when you're shooting, though? I mean, I can tell Omar, obviously, oh, no. his work to some degree is influenced <laughs> by the format. And, yeah. And, no. Yeah, no. Well, what's funny, though, is that I... When I started into Instagram, I, I did it very re- reluctantly. Um, um, I started uh, on Instagram, I think, I think it was around 2011, more or less, mm-hmm. um, maybe. And um, back then, I was shooting, you know, professionally um, for 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 Oi and different and different organizations, and um, and social media was a very new thing. So there was always the the fear of, uh, you know, image theft and copyrights and stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, I, I told myself, you know, I, yes, I'm working for some, for some organizations, but this is not really my personal work. This is not stuff that, that drives me, that, 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 you know, encourages me to do things that I want to do. And if I want to, if I want my personal work to be seen, there's no one knocking at my door. Mm-hmm. So I just started publishing it and, um, with some fears, but I, I just went ahead and did it. And I remember my brother is a, is a journalist as well, and he does photography. And we had a lot of fights in the beginning about, <laughs> like, he was telling me, you're just pulling, you know, publishing too much of your work, you're putting too much of your work out there. Who's going to buy your work? Who's going to care about your work if you just put it out there? I was like, someone is, someone will. And, <laughs> someone, and, you know, has. and someone has. 188,000, yeah. <laughs> <you know. laughs> There's an, so. another interesting thing. I mean, I'm all aboard with this Instagram, and I've had to get over the whole, you know, people can drag it and that kind of thing because it does work for us you exactly. know, more than it works against us. But when you, you're basically putting up your artwork in a very, you know, inch by in, inch format, you know, and I'm now printing prints that are three feet by four feet. And the whole experience of looking at a, at a photograph that big, I see details now that I've printed them that big that I never realized were actually in the files that I shoot because unless you blow it up, you know, you don't really see it. So that's a disadvantage, I think, for us photographers mm-hmm. that our work is being shrunk to um, to that size. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I think, you know, one of the one of the, my biggest also things against Instagram in the beginning is the fact that, you know, people are seeing a thousand or more pictures, you know, like a second, I guess, you know, when, when they're scrolling through a feed. So it sort of gives this uh, ephemeral essence to the picture, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to your work, because people are going to click like or not, and then, you know, they see the following, uh, the, you know, the next picture. So um, that was like, I guess, one of my gripes in the beginning, um, including the fact that also it was very small. But as technology advances and as our... I, digital lives advance, then you sort of just adapt to it and realize that, you know, people are now experiencing uh, media in general, mostly through their phones. So there's nothing you can't do about it. I mean, some people go to, to, to galleries, but the, the, you know, the broader audience will just experience media uh, on their phones and through social media. So, it's like either you go there or or you you know you don't. The fact that there's also a loyalty that you get from your from your view your, from your viewers mm-hmm. um, that then in my case I I post at the same time every day okay. and now it sort of doesn't matter because Instagram has changed their algorithm so that it's not chronological right. but still people expect my picture to be at 11 p.m. at night on mm-hmm. New York time uh, every day. Um, and, and you know, the comments that I get constantly is like, I look forward to this time mm-hmm. of the day to see your pictures, uh, things like that, that, um, yeah, you because it's in the, because it's in your pocket, it, it's so accessible, mm-hmm. um, it's really closer to people. You know, so people don't have to wait to go to 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 an art show, to a gallery, to to, the, you know, they can just have it with them and 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 go back to it because again, it's on your feed, uh, on your feed, on your mm-hmm. Instagram feed. Right. Uh, so you can go back to it anytime you want. 
We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to find out how Lois manages to get six dancers in the sky at one time without having to wear crash helmets. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. Anybody who has not seen Lois's work, uh, where she's shooting with two, three, four, what's the, what's the top amount of, fo- of dancers you've had in the studio at one time? At least six you've had, I oh, know yeah. that. Or more. Or yeah. more. Yeah. Now, I think it's something t- important to note is that when you look at these photographs, they look like they're composites. You have a half a dozen or more people in the air in perfect form and there's no overlapping and there's nobody crashing into each other. And I think it's important to note that you get all these in one take. This is not Photoshop magic. You're really capturing this. How do you prepare to do that? I look at your photographs and I've looked at your pictures for years and I just love your work. I'm amazed that you can pull this off without having all kinds of lawsuits and personal injury things going on. It's 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 amazing. How do you how do you set up for that? How do you prepare? No one really gets hurt because the dancers <laughs> know they're in control of their own bodies. We're not loading them into cannons and shooting them. <laughs> I love the know. image. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe it's a good idea to try. But um, so they're in control of the movement from takeoff to landing, and what they do look so impossible, but it's actually under their control because they're only working within their skill sets if they have gymnastic skills or something. So they can go up, they can go horizontal, and they can land. Um, And that's also what fascinates me about this whole enterprise is that because of I, I like to shoot things that the naked eye can't see. Right. So had you been there when I was shooting these, you just would have seen a, a, a big jumble of, of, of people flying or one person crashing or whatever. But by stopping it, it with this split second in a most unnatural position or in a confluence of shapes that seems impossible, you know, then, of course, we look at it for as long as we want to look at it and say it's impossible, but it's not impossible. It's just not visible by the naked eye, but the camera can stop it. And that's what fascinated me the whole time. But getting back to the dancers is that they're in control of their bodies. They have great skills and, um, and love to experiment and create. Uh-huh. So almost you can start anywhere and then with a little bit of guidance get to where you want to be. But again, I don't ever have an end point that I'm trying to achieve. I'm looking for actually that unexpected moment or maybe like the dancers are all jumping there entwined and 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 it's uh you know very graphic but what if one dancer has started the jump on the two count instead of the three count because you kind of count for them so they're more or less in the air at the same time just the fact that one of them might be descending while the others are ascending makes the picture that much more intriguing gotcha and of course we do it I won't say thousands of times, but we, we, we really, I mean, back with those contact sheets, I could have 20, you know, contact sheets per one of these large are you, are you jumps. Sh- are you doing less takes now that you're working digitally? Because, again, we're talking really about film. Film, you, you didn't know. I mean, they were gone. They, yeah. every, it was the next day before you got the film back. Yeah. And, and but We now, did know, though. We knew. You knew. <laughs> okay. Knew. That's That is what's called being a professional when you know. There's also a flash that goes off. And you, I mean, I couldn't tell you the details. And I, unlike Omar, I don't work alone because I do need people to make sure that the dancers are in the same place. Uh-huh. Because there's no, there wasn't, and there still is no autofocus. Right. You pre-focus and tell them to be there. Well, I say there's autofocus. You autofocus before you take the picture. I, well, we actually, <laughs> we run with a tape measure. Right, mm-hmm. And right, we right. put a mark down. Mm-hmm. Like, like a film shoot. Yeah. So it's it's really, I'm very, it's um, counterintuitive and a very... This kind of leads me to what was a big question I had, and obviously less so for Omar, but about collaboration. And do you have, not even with, do you have an assistant director that you work with that will set somebody up? Are they... Are they from the dance world? This is a lot of questions. And I'm specifically about wardrobe and, and props. Do you have somebody that you've worked with all these years? Or is um, I something? have a team, like photographic team, mm-hmm. um, like Jack Diazo, Alan, who you know. Sure, We've yeah. worked together for a long time. And I think that kind of nonverbal 
communication between people on a set. You don't. I don't have to have eyes for all six people. I've got my. You're team. thinking as a unit. Yeah, we are definitely thinking as a unit. Um, what was another part of your question? Well, I'm, I'm really curious about uh, oh, the wardrobe. Wardrobe. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, well, at the, I used to do dress rehearsals when mm-hmm. I moved back from Boston, and I worked for the Village Voice, as you mentioned, the Times, and all these places. And I had to go to theaters and shoot the live action, which started to irritate me because I thought I'm shooting someone else's art form, mm-hmm. and my art form is photography. Mm-hmm. I'm not there to document the dance. I'm there to uh, make a merger between make these two Make your own art, yeah. Make yeah. a hybrid of yeah. something that actually, as I will keep repeating, you don't see on a stage, you know, and you can only see as a photograph. So at some point I had to transpose all that work in theaters where I had no control to the studio where I did have control. But the last thing I wanted to do was to replicate any form of dance vocabulary or poses. Um, And so the first thing I did in the Breaking Bounds book was say no no costumes, no dancewear, just dance belts, just body, just make it sculpture. You know, we're going to mm-hmm. unleash Renaissance sculpture in the air kind of thing. I think thing. That's, a, that's a perfect word for the work that you do, uh, sculpture, no? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Um, and uh, and to, so I never wanted wardrobe because wardrobe connoted a theatrical performance or a specificity that I don't want in my pictures. I want you to look at it and make your own associations and not say, oh, that must be a princess or, or, or a Cinderella mm-hmm. or whatever. That is so. What I do have is just fabrics. I love to throw fabrics and um, go and collect all kinds of garbage, whether it's shredded paper or glitter. Or I go to a floral mm-hmm. supply store mm-hmm. and get styrofoam balls, and mm-hmm. and then we kind of test them out before we just throw them and experiment throwing fabrics. Wow, and that's uh, a treat. And it's yeah, mm-hmm. it's what, magic. It's, it's mm-hmm. definitely like alchemical. <laughs> Something I, I that struck me looking at some of your newer work when you have long fabrics and things of that sort, um, I, I, it reminded me of the work of, of Howard Schatz, who I really really appreciate his work. He's doing it underwater, and he's got the the. the, the was it the thermodynamic, whatever, the water dynamics of carrying this fabric and having it flowing, which is natural because it's floating. You're capturing that without water. And there's a fluidity to the imagery, which is just magical to it. And and I looked at a lot of your early work and I see what you're doing right now. And it's just an act, I'm using the word flow. It's a beautiful flow from one form to the other. And the magic is still there. It's it's really interesting. do you approach this differently than your earlier work when it was just the human form? Now you've got the human form interacting with these flowing fabrics and, and powders and all kinds of other things mm-hmm. happening. Did it? How do you approach it? Is it any different? Well, now it's a, one person against a dark background with one light that throws a lot into shadow. Mm-hmm. And um, more of what I'm calling these enigmatic and ambiguous moments of becoming. I feel when I look at my new series, which my nickname is one-to-one because they're supposed to be big and it's a direct confrontation between what the dancer's doing um, and the person viewing it as opposed to looking at more like a 16 by 20 inch print or 20 by 24 inch print. And that now seems to be more like a document of something that happened. But at the larger scale, I feel that I'm looking at something happening before my eyes. So it's almost the opposite of this slicing time into, you know, split seconds. It's still a very thin slice of time, but I feel that it, 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 it looks very fluid. Gotcha. I love this quote um, that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it, it was, dance is the ostensible subject of my work, but the subtext is time. I mean, mm. and I think it's pretty clear when you see your work that time yeah. is what we're talking about. And here. dancers give time that, well, the dancers with fabrics mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. give... Flowing fabrics, yeah. Yeah, give them, you know, a substance and materiality to the passage of time. Obviously, if you're working outside in sunsets or sunrises, you see time passing. Mm-hmm. But in a studio situation, you don't. Mm-hmm. And the fa- I think I was drawn to the fabrics in part, You um, looking at... There was a was looking at the work of Barbara Morgan, who okay. did iconic pictures of the Martha Graham Company from the 30s on. And I had the good fortune to interview her back in my newspaper days. Uh-huh. And um, I looked at that famous picture she has of Martha Graham 
which is mm-hmm. she's doing an arabesque. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And there's yeah. the skirt going up. And I realized if the dancer weren't wearing the skirt, I will by throwing the skirt up, you see the passage of time. You know the arc of fabric mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. and the picture can show you then what happened before you, they clicked the camera. Without the fabric, all you have is a very static arabesque. So I started to throw the fabric. So I realized how the the movement of fabrics, either if they're thrown or we have a fan moving or whatever, can help convey the passage of time. And another way to convey the passage of time is not to take the alleged peak moment, but to take people about to hit or descending from something. And yes. that's actually the most important and thing in had, my work. Had, it, it loses that momentum at the apogee. It just It's dead at the it's apogee. It's dead, yeah. It's either striving up or it's gently going down, and then there's a whole mm-hmm. narrative that can accompany it. That's, that's something that I actually find very interesting because in my work, I try to get to that you know, climax point, to that higher point, because what fascinates me about what, when I'm working with dancers is it's precisely the, the, the amazingness that, that these people can, can achieve with their bodies, something that they have been working for ages, you know, years and years and years of, of work to be able to like hit that arabesque at that certain point, hit that attitude at that point, hit that, you know, like, so the Shah at a specific way. So, so that's where I'm, personally trying to capture is that precise moment because I could do that at some point in my life. So I, I find certain, I identify with that moment where, where it's something that I felt in my body. And, and we would say, you know, when, when it's, when it is right, it feels right. Mm-hmm. And it, that's something that is a very primal, um, feeling that, that you feel nowhere else, but in your flesh in your muscles and, uh, and that's what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to capture. So it's very interesting how you know, like, different photographers can see things or 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 try different things. Where I, 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 I want that moment. I want that that that. I don't want to call it perfection because not, it's not perfection. The, the the beauty of it is that it's also like, it's like a, it's a split second when that happens, right. and you really have to be, have to be there, um, yeah. there. And going back to one of the points that we were mentioning at some point before is that. Um, in theater, in photography, as opposed to the theater, or or you know when they're on stage, those moments are hardly ever seen. Um, you see them in you know in, in passing, but you never really are able to like to freeze them. To freeze them, that's and that's the and, magic of photography. And that's the magic of photography to be able to like really capture that moment where where it's like a prized moment that you have been working for all mm-hmm. all of your life to be able to like reach that prime that your muscles look at the you know at their best um so yeah you coming from a dance background and a and a mime background very similar obviously and you're coming from a you know photo reportage i'm sensing that that's maybe what you're you see and and you're more interested in this this moment before and after in the story and you're more interested in that moment right there do you think there's a connection with with your own past and your own you know, work as a dancer. And then my other question is about communicating with your dancers. I'm curious to know if you work with specific dancers multiple times and also how you get them to to do what you might want them to do. I realize that in some cases they're, you're, you're letting them do their thing and you're, you're working around them, but there has to be a communication back and forth. And are you comfortable with all the dance terms you need to be? And are they comfortable with the photography terms? And, and how does that communication happen? Going back to one of the first questions that you made, Alan, um, when you asked, like, are some dancers better in front of the camera or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's not that some of the dancers are better or not in front of the camera, but... Well, more comfortable, maybe, is a better word to use. Perhaps. For me, the dancers that I find are better to work with is people that, are, that have initiative. You know, it, it's dancers that... that um, I I am very comfortable with the dan- dance terms, but there's as a photographer, there's also many other things that you're looking at. In my case, I'm looking at traffic, I'm looking at lights, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at many different things that that you know, like the people in the street, the taxi driver's eyes. Yeah, um, no, you, you'd be surprised when you're shooting out of the street. There's a lot of elements that you are of paying attention to. Like you know, there's 
there's there's cat calls that happen that there's there's so you have to also you know start oh, yeah. yeah get protective <laughs> of the dancers at some point uh, there's there's you know like people that are getting into your shots um, so there's, is, there's there's a whole lot of things that happen so I am fairly comfortable with um, with dance terms and I and I ask them specifically what I want them many many times but the dancers that I find myself working with the most is are are the dancers that are that are also very comfortable with suggesting their own poses mm-hmm. and suggesting things because as much as I can tell them do this or do that they know their bodies best mm-hmm. so they know like what are the things that they can do better and 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 but not all dancers are that way the key is that dancers are trained to follow choreography as as Lewis was mentioning so at some point so um that's their training um not all dancers are so not all dancers are just able to devise um mm-hmm. movement uh, you know on Absolutely. A, mm-hmm. so you have to be as a photographer you have to be when you're working with dancers you have to be uh, knowledgeable enough so that you can give them a place to start uh, but then also you have to be able to like pull back at some point and have let them take the lead if if they're taking the lead have all of your photographs are that I've seen there's there's this multiple dynamics of street and action and cars and people walking by with hand trucks and and all kinds of stuff do you ever get the urge to just get away to a blank canvas be in the middle of a desert or down by the shore or someplace where the dynamics are just totally different the look and, and and action and dynamics where it's just you and this one person without all of this chaos there's a lot of chaos that goes into your pictures which is part of the power of it do you ever want to start with like a, a, a clean canvas um i think i work with what i have in front of me and that's one of the reasons you know i guess if there was like a, a possibility to find those places in new york i would i would find them um but you know i think new york is characteristic of the chaos precisely so i think that's what i'm trying to portray um so that's where 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 that started really starting to use the the aesthetic that i was learning from street photography and translating into into what i'm doing now um but that's not something that i would say no to i could i could try it at some point um but right now i think when john was mentioning it and it's kind of true i like the thrill (laughs) <laughs> I feel like the thrill of like having like all those you know all those elements merging together because for example a lot of times when there's all these people walking by certain sometimes it can be um um sometimes it can interrupt the flow but a lot of times it makes you know the picture and and oh, I, a lot of times a lot of your pictures are made by people just walking just back walking and by you know ignoring you or looking yeah. at you there's some yeah. funny stuff that goes on and that's half the magic of the yeah. picture is all this other stuff in the background yeah do you, I mean, do you find yourself waiting okay hey i see this guy coming down the street with this something in his hand i want to get him in there and uh there was it has happened. Uh, there was one particular time that happened, and I, and I think it's worth mentioning now. It's uh, it was um, a picture that I took where Mr. Bill Cunningham. I was just gonna um, we were looking at that picture. He earlier. he was in the picture, and I actually saw him on the corner. Um, we were by Bryant Park, and I saw him arriving on on his bike, and and we were, the dancer and myself were waiting for the light to change so that we could get into the into the crosswalk and shoot. And when I saw him, I told her. Just run as fast as you can because we need to get into this. Usually, I will wait for some people to 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 move out of the way so that we can shoot. Um, but I was like, forget the people now. Just just run into the street as fast as you can and let's get there as as fast as we can. So, because I'm pretty sure that if we get in there, like he's most <laughs> likely gonna shoot. Just to kind of um, clarify, he's talking about Bill Cunningham, who's yes. like a legendary New York Times photographer who just passed away. Yeah. So, so yeah, and that's, that's, a f- you know, that's a photo that I wouldn't have been able to make anywhere else. Um, and that's part of the beauty of, of, of those things that do happen. And he's taking a picture of you working, taking the yes. picture. That's magic. Yeah. That's wonderful. I would, I would like to see that picture. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's true. You may wonder. And uh, there's also a lot of great shots where you're utilizing the architecture of the city and the streets mm-hmm. and pipes and, and buildings and, and having the dancers kind of conform their bodies to these yes. shapes and, and those are incredible as well. Yeah. yeah. So the, that's, that's part of the challenge of like finding those little things and, and, uh, 
when they happen and it's, it's just like magic so so there's a lot of times that you know we, we're walking for for three or four blocks and and nothing happens we're just walking and then suddenly you know like something like that happens and it's just like magic Hey, Lois, can I ask, um, given the relationship with, with your work and how you kind of want to take it away from the performance, uh, well, two questions. Do you enjoy dance performances? Do you go and, and, and soak them up? And if you don't want to answer that question, you don't have to. <laughs> um, and the other question is, um, how do this, the dancers feel and, and, and the dance community feel to some degree when you're saying, hold on, hold on, I'm not worried about the, the choreography and, and the narrative. I just want this, this moment. Do they, is there any pushback sometimes? Well, I mean, if I'm hired by a dance company to shoot choreography, of course I do that. Mm -hmm. And I, I try to maximize it in some way and make sure it's not static or too posed looking, which is often what happens. Um, so, yeah, I'm just out to make that dance look like an, look very exciting as a photograph, mm -hmm. which is different from just collaborating with people with no intention other than to experiment and explore Dance has a limited vocabulary of movements, and they have to work together in concert in a certain space and according to intervals of time. But the magic for me is they can, the dancers in my studio can just in an instant create a split second that is not part of anything, mm -hmm. but they'd never be able to do that in the context the of context. a dance because they did no takeoff, no landing, and there's no music or whatever. So, and the dancers really like that because. I think they feel a bit confined by the constraints of choreography every night, you know, over and over again, years and years and years. Of course, they love doing it, and it's a thrill and a challenge and pleasurable for them. But it's also fun for them to just see how they can make a work of art out of... Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's very creative for them. Mm -hmm. And often then... I, I think actually has inspired them to create and do different things. I would in imagine ways. that they yeah. may see something in a photograph yeah. that they didn't realize they were even doing, and then try to incorporate that yeah. into a bigger piece. Yeah, it's a challenge for them. I'm sure doing any kind of ballet performance over and over is a bit rote for them. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and Omar, do you enjoy going to dance performances? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I enjoy I enjoy the the the, the physicality of it. Um, and that comes back from 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 when I was performing. So, um, I guess I, as I've gotten older, I see it in a more nostalgic way. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I say it laughing. But yeah, because you know, I was part of that at some you point. You're probably the youngest guy in the room, right? Just to be clear about that, okay? Yeah, up, but I just cannot do anything. You know. I, any of the things that I used to do, you know, I, before, before I, before I was a, a mime, I was actually a gymnast. Uh -huh. so, so, you know, like I was, my body was somewhere at some yeah. point in my life. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I definitely enjoy watching those things and, um, particularly even better when, when it's the dancers that I work with that invite me to see their shows because then I get to see them in a completely different light. Um, so, yeah. Lois, you, you, your, your latest book just came out uh, and it's doing really, really nicely. What's your, what are the projects are you working on? You involved in workshops or things of that sort? Yes, I love to give workshops actually mm -hmm. in my studio. So it's very, um, it's a very small group of people using my camera system and my lighting system and my dancers and um, maybe seven people at a time, and I guide them. And, of course, they have great dancers who, you know, can do amazing things. Um, what's really very rewarding for me is that people think what I do is so complicated and so hard, and they never can do it. And when they come to the studio, they realize, of course, this is a guided experience, but it's right. still something that they're actually doing. No one's taking the pictures for them. Mm -hmm. And so it opens up their whole creativity and imagination. They realize, you know what? It's not that hard because they see my process isn't that hard, you know? Right. And it's not intimidating. They think that they're going to have to know something that they don't have to know. And they see that I don't know everything they think I'm going to know. Mm -hmm. so, How often do you have sh uh, your workshops? We do a couple times a year. I have one coming up next October. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's incredibly so, refreshing, though. I yeah. imagine for a lot of, I mean, for me, just to know the way you work is... Yeah, because it, they, yeah. they think it's so complicated mm -hmm. and they never can do it. And, mm -hmm. you know, as we said, I well, work... Both you guys. I mean, it's just yeah. incredible what you can get with pretty basic, let's just call it a basic philosophy, you know, not to mention basic setups and gear. We're not talking about... 
high tech. We're not talking about super complicated setups in any way, shape, or form. And you're getting this incredible work. It's uh, that's great. There's also a lot of photographers out there that their whole experience of photography uh, is the image on a phone or an iPad or a screenplay. You're still working in prints. Yes. Okay. What, what kind of yeah. printers are you using these days? Well, I use the 9900 Epson printer. Okay. And uh, we That's now- That's a 24-inch or 48? Which one is 48. that? 48. 48. Okay. You got the real guy. Okay. The big yeah. Guys. Okay. And we do it all in-house. Uh-huh. Uh, so we can keep tweaking as we go as, you know, the, the prints come out. So for the Moving Still book, we have exhibits now that are going to be traveling. And one just opened at Jacob's Pillow in Beckett, Massachusetts. And we're printing three feet by four feet so we could really see the detail Did the you picture. print that big- Back in the days of no, analog? No. And, and what's your experience between the two? Because I know it, it's it's a whole different experience. Is, is it more rewarding to you to work uh, in with digital output compared to chemical output? Well, I don't think that's the difference. I just like the scale of it better. Right. Okay. And um, so, yeah, like I was saying before about the new series, which is basically what I'm exhibiting, not the older mm-hmm. anti-gravitational mm-hmm. work. You get to see details absolutely imper- that would have been imperceptible just on the screen or in a smaller format. Um, so, yeah, so we're printing on Epson luster paper and mounting it on aluminum, and they're just going to float off the walls, and they'll be traveling to Russia and China and other places. So It's great stuff. And it's a very different experience than looking at it on an iPhone screen. It is. I mean, the screen is luminous, but... It's yeah. not the same as, as walking the up to tactile, mm-hmm. textural, yeah. visceral. It it's, comes alive as a, as a print, I think. Yeah, yep. And it doesn't go away when the power is gone. That's a beautiful thing. As That's well. another thing. That's a great thing. Omar, what's coming up with you? Um, I'm going to start traveling, uh, sponsored by Fujifilm. Mm-hmm. Um, and first up, we're going to be going to Mexico uh, very soon. And the idea is to follow up with uh, the with OCR dance series. But at the same time, I'll be meeting with other ex-photographers um, in, in different locations. Um, and the idea is to build up on the digital community and just the, the general Fujifilm community of, of photographers. Okay, very good. Lois, people <laughs> want to see your work. Where are they going to? Yes, they can go to loisgreenfield.com. They can go to find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And your books are available on Amazon. On Amazon. Okay. Omar, what about yourself? So you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and uh, Facebook as Omar Z. Robles. Um, My website, however, is omarrobles.com. And uh, you can also find uh, prints right there on my website. Excellent. Thank you, Lois. Thank you, Omar. Thank you, John and Jason, our producers. Give us your opinions on Twitter at BHPhotoVideo with the hashtag BHPhotoPodcast. And please rate and leave a review on iTunes. My name is Alan Weitz, and thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs>